In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Each year, beloved in Christ, on the second Sunday of the Triodion, and in immediate preparation for Lent, we think again on the parable of the prodigal son. This was Jesus' story of the thoughtless young man who forfeited his birthright in order to satisfy a shallow and transitory whim. Forsaking his inheritance, this young man became the embodiment of what the book of Proverbs calls a fool. Fortunately, however, Jesus gave this parable a happy ending, unlike the story of Esau. A happy ending, at least with respect to the fool himself, and the loving father rejoiced to have back his son. I will arise and go to my father. I will arise and go to my father. These words today I want to consider with you under three aspects. First, the radical nature of nostalgia. Second, an alternate or alternative ending to the parable. Third, identifying the invitation. First, let's speak of the radical nature of nostalgia. I understand this adjective radical in the etymological sense of coming from the root or having to do with the root. Consequently, to say that nostalgia is radical in man means that it comes from his very being. He has created a nostalgic being. Therefore, switching from Latin to Greek, let's examine this word nostalgia. We especially need to do this because it seems to me that nostalgia is no longer the way I remembered it. I thought I'd get a bigger rise than that. I, <laughs> the first half of nostalgia comes from nostos, a second declension Greek noun meaning homecoming. The second half of nostalgia comes from a third declension Greek noun, algos, which means distress. That is to say, the word nostalgia is etymologically what we often refer to as homesickness. The ancient Greeks knew a lot about nostalgia. I mean, they gave us the word. The Greeks were the most nostalgic of people. 
They were businessmen, you see, who traveled a lot. They still are. They started new colonies all around the coastlines of the Mediterranean and Black Seas. They settled in such places, but they missed home. This malady, this species of melancholy, they referred to as nostalgia. Nostalgia is the longing to get back to Greece. It was the pain they felt when they remembered where they came from, even though their family hadn't been there for 10 generations. And this pain prompted them to want to go home. A good number of Greeks, however, were not businessmen, but philosophers and poets. The Greeks have taught us very, very many things, such as philosophy, poetry, and how to run a business. Now, for the philosophers and the poets, nostalgia became something more than homesickness for Greece. It took on a distinctly metaphysical quality. When they thought about it, they realized that the Greeks who stayed in Greece felt the same way they did. That is to say, they still missed the homeland, which made them speculate that maybe Greece was not the homeland. The real homeland had something to do more with more than the land of Greece. The greatest poem written on this theme was written by the poet Homer. This is the chief literary work that explores the theme of radical nostalgia. The work is called The Odyssey. It was a tale of a classical Greek traveler, not a businessman, but a warrior. Someone who sailed to Troy years ago with Agamemnon and his companions. Why did they go over to Troy? They went over to Troy to, do, to wage war, and to wage war for probably the best possible reason you can wage war, is to rescue a woman. Homer also wrote the classical poem about that Trojan War called the Iliad. Beside the Bible, and along with the Aeneid, the most important works ever composed by the human mind. Anyway, when the Trojan War was over, the Greek warriors came back to Greece. Homer wrote about the adventures of one of them, a man named Odysseus, a name which means the traveler is a long epic poem that describes the return home of this character, Odysseus. If that work were to be written right now, somebody nowadays would write it. I can't conceive that that would happen. But if that were to be written right now, it would end with the second last book, where he is restored to his wife. You might notice that in the, compare the movie Love Story with the book Love Story. Exactly the same. Um, the way the book ends, the way the movie ends. Mm -hmm. 
very, very different. If that work were to be written right now, it would end with the second last book, second last part, where he's restored to his wife. However, that's not the way Homer wrote it. The final chapter of that book tells of the traveler's reunion with his father. The final goal of the story is there for the father's house. And that's essentially what the book is about. I will arise and go to my father. The traveler's nostalgia calls him back to the father's house. You know, the Greeks were not entirely sure what this meant. This marvelous thing about Greek culture. It's making figures in the dark waiting for them to be enlightened. If all human beings feel, feel a deep tug of soul for the Father's house, return to the Father, what did this mean? Who was this Father? Certainly not that stupid Zeus, whom Homer himself makes fun of continually. No sane person would want to go back to that dysfunctional maniac, Zeus. In fact, that would almost be the definition of hell to spend eternity with Zeus <laughs> and, the, and the crowd that surrounded him of, you know, ne'er-do-wells and never amounted to much. The Greeks were never able by themselves to identify the proper goal of the radical nostalgia of which the soul was conscious. But heavens knows they tried. The greatest of the Greeks, a man named Socrates, has left us an account of his experience of nostalgia. A court at Athens condemned Socrates to death, and he was awaiting that sentence in prison. After the trial was over, however, the Athenians began to have second thoughts about the verdict. They sensed that the world would not approve of what they had done. Their own consciences did not approve of what they had done. Future generations, to the end of time, would think their sentence unjust. People would side with Socrates and condemn the Athenians, who treated him unjustly. The Athenians were very smart people. They knew this. Some of the Athenians in start started to regret what they had done. They made secret plans to correct their mistake. Someone leaked word to the friends of Socrates that he would be allowed to escape. The door of the prison cell would be left unlocked. and The guards were instructed not to interfere. Socrates could just slip away from prison and flee from Athens, and nobody would lose. Socrates would not die, and the Athenians would not lose face. Crito, the friend of Socrates, came to him on the night before he was to drink the hemlock. He shared with Socrates this arrangement. Crito pleaded with Socrates to leave, to escape, to go away from Athens. 
off to some place where he would be safe. And here's what Socrates replied on the last page of the dialogue with Crito. I beg your indulgence to read this in Greek. This is the language I first, in which I first read it when I was a boy. I was very young when I first read it, reading it in Greek. And I found by the end of the page that I was bawling like a baby. I promise not to do that this morning. Tafta ophile hetaire kriton. Evisti hoti ego ek doko akuin. Hosper hi korumba nisanunotas. Ton alone dokusin akuin. Kedi mi afti hi iki tuton ton logon bombe. Kepii mi dynastai ton alone akuin. O dear friend Crito, understand these things. This is the voice which I seem to hear humming in my ears, Bombay. Like the sound of the flute in the ears of the dervishes. That voice, I say, is humming in my ears. It prevents me from hearing any other. Socrates had already declared during his trial that it was better to be dead in Athens than alive anywhere else. Still, he knew that Athens was not where he truly belonged. He was called elsewhere he was determined to drink the hemlock. Socrates knew that someone was calling him home. And he was not able to identify whose voice redounded in his soul. He was sure, however, that he had to accept the invitation. Second, let us consider an alternative ending to this parable of the son returning to his father. Indeed, this alternative ending currently employs, enjoys a great popularity. The modern version of the story is so common that it is often taken to represent common sense. Yes, says this new view, human beings feel this nostalgia. But it doesn't mean anything. It's just a psychological problem, not seriously different from any other form of melancholy or pathology. It is psychological. It's a psychological trick. It's not metaphysical. If you work hard enough, you can defeat it. You get counseling. You can explain it away. Detach yourself from it like any other psychological aberration. You get over it the same way you get over every other internal pathology. You get counseling, you take drugs, you get, you get interested in work, you do something. 
because you don't let it dominate your life. We should treat it as if we treat other forms of homesickness. Think back when you first left home. I'm thinking back when I first left home at age 14. I was really homesick. But what did they tell me? They told me what they were supposed to tell me. Stay in there, kid. You'll get over it. After a while, you won't even feel it anymore. Above all, says the alternative ending. Do not treat this homesickness as evidence that there really is a home. That inference is entirely delusional. There is no home except life in this world. This is it. You're not going anywhere. When you die, all we do is turn the lights out. One finds this argument everywhere nowadays. This alternative ending to the parable was formulated by Daniel Dennett in his book, Breaking the Spell, by Richard Dawkins in his The God Delusion. This is an interesting argument by Dennett and Dawkins, which I summarized very simply. Man's natural hunger for God is no evidence that there really is a God. That's their argument. Fair enough. Let me suggest another consideration. When you have logical arguments, what you do is simply replace the terms of the argument, but keep it same structure. That's how you prove something's invalid. Let's just change, let's keep the same argument but just change the terms. Man's natural hunger for food is no evidence that there's such a thing as food. <laughs> that is to say, the secularist argument proves nothing at all. The, same Christ, the sane Christian will answer, of course. He'll suggest that just as there appears to be an empty place in man's body called a stomach, there seems to be an empty place in man's soul called the image of God. It seems far less than fully human to say that the one hole should be filled, but the other hole ignored. The same alternative ending to the parable has also been advanced by Christopher Hitchens, who, by the way, is currently dying of cancer. I watched a fascinating television interview with Christopher Hitchens. Some of you may have picked it up a few weeks ago on Q&E on C-SPAN on Sunday night. It's arguably the best show on television is that, that hour on C-SPAN on Sunday nights. Hitchens was asked if during this time before he dies, he is ready to rethink his atheism. No, he replied, cancer is a terrible thing but it does not lower a person's IQ. That is a direct quote. Um, since I've always had sort of a soft place in my heart for Christopher Hitchens, uh, as I do for anybody who seems to me to be well-intentioned but took a wrong turn someplace, and I know about that because I've taken so many wrong turns, and I really wasn't all that pure of heart. But Hitchens represents an especially poignant version of this alternative ending. 
Hitchens argues that this sense of metaphysical nostalgia is actually a distraction from the person's moral responsibility in this world. This longing for God, he says, especially since there is no God, sidetracks the human conscience from undertaking those many enterprises that might actually improve life in this world. Among the places Hitchens makes this striking argument is in his introduction to the book Infidel, the autobiography of a Somalian woman named Ayan Hirsi Ali. In this extraordinary book, this remarkable young woman explains in detail why she abandoned her Muslim religion and gave up all religion. She did so, she explains, in revolt against oppression and injustice. Having endured the mutilation of her own body, beatings, a compulsory marriage with a man she did not know and could not love, Ayan fled to the West and became a complete secularist. She confesses in this wonderful book that she feels not the slightest nostalgia for a God who approved of such injustice and suffering. That's a very, very challenging book. Very, very well written. It comes at the God thesis in a most telling way. What should we say about this alternative ending to the parable? A just response would admit the merits of this young woman's claim, and a compassionate response will hope that she never experiences such suffering and oppression again. In her flight to secularism, Ayan at least demonstrates that having no God is preferable to having the wrong one. That is a traditional Christian thesis first enunciated by Tertullian at the beginning of the third century. If you must decide between atheism and idolatry, choose atheism. Because every God that is not the true God is a demon. The Christian fathers insisted that atheism is always preferable to idolatry. When she fled Islam for atheism, she gave up a false god for no god. I must confess I am obliged to agree with Christopher Hitchens now, right now, at this moment. The most wicked and oppressive people in this world seem to be religious people. The case of Ayan demonstrates a thesis that the Christian church has always embraced. Namely, radical nostalgia for God can be deceived and perverted as well as any other impulse in the human soul. That empty place inside us with the image of God, the divine whole, 
we can put poison in there. For this reason, it is important to identify the true source and the ultimate meaning of this impulse. This brings us to our third point. Let us see if we can identify the voice, the true source of man's metaphysical homesickness. What is it that prompts him, really, to say, I will arise and go to my father? Why does this son travel, who's traveled to a foreign land and has squandered his inheritance, suddenly remember that he has a home? A bit more than 500 years after Socrates made that journey home, drinking the hemlock and trusting his soul to a voice he was unable to identify, a Christian named Ignatius from the city of Antioch made another journey. He was on his way to the city of Rome to stand charge on capital charges. Ignatius had every intention, however, to travel much further than Rome. Beyond Rome, there was someplace else he wanted to go. But during that journey, Ignatius of Antioch sent out seven letters which described the preoccupations that burdened his soul. One of these, in some ways the most curious, is letter number four addressed to the Christians at Rome. Ignatius had friends in Rome, just as Socrates had friends in Athens. On this journey to Rome, Ignatius heard a rumor that his Christian friends in Rome were working behind the scenes to prevent his case ever coming to trial. He would get there and the charge would be dismissed and he could go home. They wanted to save him. Ignatius, however, would have none of it. He implored the Roman Christians to back off and let events take their course. In fact, he goes further than that. He says, I hear you fellows are trying to arrange things. I don't even come to trial. He says, this is my big moment. You're not going to steal this from me. I don't know the Greek for knock it off, but he's telling them to, to, to back away. He did not want to be saved, just as Socrates did not want to be saved. So Ignatius wrote this letter to the Romans. And here's a quotation from chapter 7. Hoemos eros estavlatai. Heukestin inimi pure my eros, my fleshly love, is dead. No longer burns in me the love of material things. For if there is a living water, speaking within me, that says within me, Devro Prospatera, come to the Father.
I will arise, says today's parable, and go to my father. Ignatius was better informed than Socrates because Ignatius identified the voice that called him. He calls it the Hidor Zon, the living water, the Holy Spirit, who summoned him to the goal, the Father. Ignatius knew he was making the real journey of which the homecoming of Odysseus was a bare shadow. Such, beloved, is the nostalgia of the soul, the radical homesickness described by Augustine of Hippo at the beginning of the Confessions. Thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. Now, such is the sentiment that inspires us now as we prepare our hearts for the beginning of Lent. Two weeks from tonight, it is imperative that I see every one of you here again. It's imperative. I don't mean you from Arizona. I mean, you don't have to come back. Okay. Two weeks from tonight, we will gather here in church to commence Lent together. That's the service where you really find out if you really are an Orthodox Christian. If you're there, you're an Orthodox Christian. If you're not there, you're not an Orthodox Christian. It's real simple. We will begin with the annual ritual of reconciliation. Before we ever bring our gift to the altar, we will all hug and kiss one another. Each of us will come to every other single member of the parish and seek forgiveness in any, for any way we may have offended one another. This is how we want to have the correct ending to the parable. There is a sense in which our Vesper service two weeks from tonight is the most important service conducted during the year in any parish church. This is yet another alternate, alternative ending to the parable we read today. According to this ending, the two brothers are reconciled in the common love they receive from the Father. You see, you could have another ending to that parable, don't you? Where the brother comes in and receives back the, his prodigal brother. Because no one is forgiven by God except he forgives his brothers and sisters. I remember saying this um, about 12 years ago. And a very, very well-known preacher, pastor of a very, very well-known church, was visiting us clandestinely because he had heard about us. And I said that. I said, you're not saved by faith alone. His blood pressure started to rise. I said, it's imperative that you do something more. You start with forgiving people. He and I talked about that later. No one is forgiven by God except he forgives his brothers and sisters.
when we rise and go to our Father, we never go alone. No one comes to God without his brothers and sisters.